John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up. John chapter 1, verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The Gospel of John now gives us a brief record, a brief testimony of John the Baptist. In that record, in that testimony, we're given glimpses into the Baptist's identity, into his humility, into his ministry. Remember, the New Testament's description of John the Baptist paints him in the most incredible terms, in great terms, as a matter of fact. He was sent by God, according to verse 6. He was a lamp, but not the light, according to verse 7. Here we discover he's a voice, but not the word. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus says, among those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. We're told that he lived in deserts, that he wore camel's hair and a coarse leather belt, and he ate a steady diet of locusts and wild Honey, it's sort of the first century version of sweet tomatoes. He's going, oh, natural. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, literally we discover that crowds, multitudes and multitudes show up to hear John speak. Jesus, when asked about the ministry of John the Baptist, said, and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what is it that you went out to go into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? It was Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and Christian who wrote, man is only a reed, the weakest thing in nature, but he's a reed that thinks. And human beings think a lot about a lot of things, don't they? They think about themselves. Who am I? Why am I here? And sometimes they're even willing to ask the question, who are you and what are you doing here? Why are we here? Someone once said that the greatest thing that you think about is when you think about God. What you think about God might be the most important thing about you. But I would go so far as to say this, not simply what you think about God is important, but what God thinks about you. What does Jesus think about you? 
Who are you? We look at the minister's identity. Look at verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John. And we know this is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? One of the challenges that we have with John's gospel is that it isn't written in chronological order. If you are like me, I like things to make sense. I want to know what the beginning is. I want to know what the middle is. I want to know what the end is. We know growing up as Christians, for some of us, that we know the story of Jesus, how he was born in Bethlehem of a manger. He was born of a virgin, how his family during his youth, they escaped to Egypt and then they came back from Egypt. Then they went to Nazareth. He grew up. You know how he came back to Jerusalem when he was 12, the large gap between the age of 12 and then his ministry. How he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's tempted by the devil. I suspect if we were to orient ourselves in John's gospel, that's where we find ourselves. This is either immediately after Jesus's wilderness temptations as he's standing out in the desert. He's listening to the testimony of John. So what we see here is is, it's either right before or right after John's baptism. We may find it difficult to understand why John would write this way. But you need to understand that part of John's objectives as the writer of this gospel is to contrast the world of belief and the world of unbelief. You see, John's gospel has two main themes. The first theme is the theme of love. John is inviting all people to come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ because the love of God is made known in the person of Christ. But also, it's a gospel about warning. You see, there are people who embrace Jesus and there are people who reject Jesus. The Jews that he's speaking about here are the religious leaders, the religious establishment. Even when you read the words, now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That expression, the Jews, is going to appear some 70 times in John's gospel. And when John uses that expression, he means the religious leadership. He means the religious establishment. He means the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees who stand in opposition to Jesus. Now, some people have taken umbrage or offense that John would use this. He thinks that John is being anti-Semitic. But but nothing could be further from the truth. I was listening to my son, Jonathan. Jonathan was telling a Mexican joke. Some some joke, who knows? It was something like, um, you know, why do Mexicans cross the border two people at a time? Well, why? Because they see the sign that says no trace passing. Two can go, but not three. And I'm trying to tell Jonathan, Jonathan. You are. Of Hispanic heritage. You're 50% Mexican. Do you understand how inappropriate it is for you to do Mexican jokes? 
It's inappropriate for John the Apostle to do Jewish jokes. He really isn't doing Jewish jokes. What he's doing is he's going to, again, contrast the world of belief with the world of unbelief, the world of acceptance with the world of rejection. And so when it says the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, well, who are the Levites? These are men who are descendants from the tribe of Levi, only the direct descendants of Levi, the people of the tribe of Levi could become workers, Levitical workers, if you will. And only the direct descendants of Aaron could serve in the office or the capacity of priest. You see, there was only one way you could be a priest in Israel. You had to be born into the family of the priests. That means no matter how rich you were, how smart you were, how wealthy you were, it, how, it didn't matter. You couldn't be a priest unless you were born into the priestly family. The Levites were qualified to serve as attendants or helpers to the priests. We learn elsewhere in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter one, verse five, that John's father was a man named Zechariah, who was a priest. And so in the world of the first century Judaism, all the sons of priests were by virtue of descent priests. But John is no ordinary priest and he is no ordinary prophet. He lives and preaches in a radically different way from the religious establishment. And we can understand how institutional religion, established religion can be very, very suspicious, maybe even hostile when new things come along. The church, by the way, as an institution, might be one of the most reluctant to change. And we're willing to condemn a new way simply because it is new. The religious leaders, the powers that be, who have the responsibility for the safety and security, if you will, the spiritual integrity of the life of the Jewish people were the religious leaders. And so they send these people to determine if John's practice is consistent with Moses, consistent with the prophets, consistent with the traditions of the fathers. And like I said, we can understand how a, how a group could be somewhat suspicious. John's answer doesn't begin with his impressive credentials. So when they ask him, who are you? It's interesting to me what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am a priest and the son of a priest and the grandson of a priest. I am a prophet. I am a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit from my from my conception. I'm the cousin of Jesus. My identity and my ministry was prophesied in the book of Isaiah and Malachi and the fiery sermons which I'm preaching in order to tell people to repent. The fact that tens of thousands of people are showing up to hear me speak. Doesn't that mean anything to you? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even mention his keen sense of first century fashion. John doesn't look for a label to feed his pride or prop up his insecurity. His identity isn't the Messiah, though. Look what it says. In verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
In the original language, it's emphatic. Remember, there were a lot of messianic pretenders at this particular moment in time and space. And so he quickly denies that he is the Christ. By the way, the word Christ and Messiah are the same. A lot of people growing up in non-religious circumstances sometimes think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Oh, Jesus Christ. No, that's not his last name. Christ is a title. It means anointed or appointed. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, a gospel written specifically for Jewish people, Matthew writes in chapter 1, verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the New Testament says. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. Raised in Nazareth. And you have to understand something. In the time of Jesus, the whole situation is ripe for a Messiah. The history of the Jewish people after the collapse of the kingdom of David and Solomon saw a divided nation, then a conquered nation with a series of captivities and conquests by neighboring nations. Israel became a client state first to the Babylonians, then to the Persians, then to the Greeks, then then to the Romans. This is a group of people who are desperate for a deliverer, desperate for a savior, sort of like the front range, desperate for a World Series winning team. You get a a little bit of the fever. You hear the radio. You turn on the TV. You wear a certain color. You want them to win. It was like that. It was a taste in their mouth. We know that God promised a Messiah, a Savior. And part of the problem lay in the human desire and the human expectations. People wanted freedom, but they didn't necessarily want the kind of freedom because even the messianic expectation was different for different people. And you can imagine the Jewish leaders wanting to make sure that people were in step, but they also are. There's this keen sense that the Messiah could come at any moment. A lot of people want freedom. They want a savior. They want a savior who will make them happy. They want a savior who will make them prosperous. They want a a savior who will release them from the degradation of sexual addiction or drug and alcohol addiction. They want a savior who will release them. But often they want to remain self-sufficient. They want Jesus as the Messiah, but they still want to be the Lord of their own life. You see, there's a wide divide between people's expectations of what they want Jesus to be and who he really was. And the same was true in the first century of John the Baptist. People are looking at him and they have this sense of expectation. Are you the one? Are you the promised deliverer? Are you the one who's going to release us from the bondage and set us free? Gullible people were drawn towards pretenders who would make false messianic claims. Someone might even ask you, are you the Christ? And you might think that's that's a stupid question. What a ridiculous question. Why would you ask me if I'm the Christ? Of course, I'm not the Christ. I'm not 
Jewish. I wasn't born from the line of David. I wasn't born in Bethlehem. My, my circumstances weren't foretold hundreds of years in advance. I never lived a perfect life. I didn't die on a cross. I never rose from the dead. How could I possibly be the Messiah? Good answer. Unless, of course, you say you're not the Messiah, but you live in such a way of settled self-sufficiency. You claim that you're not the Messiah, but you look to yourself and your religious circumstances. That you're trusting and relying your goodness, your greatness in order to be acceptable to God. If you're trusting yourself, you may you may say you're not the Christ, but if you're trusting yourself for personal acceptance before God, you have, in effect, made yourself to be Christ. John knows that he's not the Messiah. And look at verse 21, and they asked him, well, who then? What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? His answer is even more terse, more brief. No. The religious leaders invite John to a sort of a first century version of the game show. Well, what is your line? Who are you? Who are you, John? Where do you fit in in the prophetic scheme of things? If you're not the Christ, if you're not the Elijah, if you're not the prophet. Again, remember what I said to you. The atmosphere is charged with messianic fever. There's this widespread belief that the prophet Elijah would return, that he would come back from the dead if he were ever dead prior to the coming of the Messiah. And some of you are familiar with the story of Elijah, the Tishbite, how he has this amazing prophetic ministry, how a, a, a woman's son comes back from the dead, how a, an oil, a, a cruise of oil gets repeatedly filled. Elijah is met by a fiery chariot and he's taken into heaven. The belief was fueled by the scripture found in Malachi chapter four, verse five, or if you're Italian, Malachi chapter four, verse five. In Malachi verse chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so many religious leaders taught that Elijah would come. The expectation was the belief that Elijah would come and he would warn people that part of his job would be to anoint the Messiah to his kingly office. They even went so far, some even believed that Elijah with the Messiah would bring the dead back to life and some would be ushered into Messiah's kingdom and others would be rejected. And so. John denies that he is Elijah in person. By the way, Jesus does identify John the Baptist with Elijah. Not in person, but in the power and the spirit of Elijah. As a matter of fact, Jesus' own disciples would later ask him in Mark chapter 9, verse 11. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, you'll remember those miraculous circumstances 
surrounding the pregnancy and then the bringing to term of, of, of John the Baptist and what the angel said. The angel spoke that Elijah would come in the or, or that John would would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So if the religious leaders at that particular moment in time and space had said, hey, are you Elijah? No. Have you come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah? I suspect he would have said. Yeah. Then they asked the question. Is John the prophet? By the way, the prophet was thought to be another forerunner of the Messiah, a prophet who fully would explain the the things of God to the people of God. In John chapter seven, verse 40, a little bit later on, it says, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. The prophet is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. There Moses prophesies concerning this prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him shall you hear. Moses promised a prophet that God would raise up, that he would take place in the construct of Judaism and Jews from among your brethren. He wouldn't be Korean. He wouldn't be Russian. He wouldn't be Arabian. He wouldn't be Italian. He wouldn't be French. He is going to be Jewish, this this prophet. By the way, the early apostles viewed Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, it says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Later in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, it says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him shall you hear. They know that he's coming. And so in verse 22. It says, then they said to him. Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I think it's interesting. Again, he doesn't point to his prophetic credentials. He doesn't point to his identity in any way other than in its relationship to the Messiah, to the Christ. In verse 7, remember, we discovered that John was a lamp, but not the light. Now we're going to discover something else. He's a voice, but not the word. Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, he doesn't say he doesn't speak for himself. But he allows the prophet to speak on his behalf. And by the way, John's message was taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. There we read the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What does John mean by quoting that scripture? What does 
He wants the hearer to conclude. Merle Tenney, one of the great Old Testament and New Testament scholars, explains in his commentary, and I quote, The imagery was taken from the days when there were no paved roads, only tracks across fields. If a king were to travel, the road must be built and smoothed out that the royal chariot might not find the traveling unduly rough, nor be swamped in the mire, unquote. When a king comes, they would build a special road. And during the building of that special road, they would remove all of the obstacles out of the way. John is in effect saying, I am here to prepare the road for the king to to remove the obstacles on the king's highway. John is using the same metaphor of an earlier prophet, Isaiah. And he speaks of the metaphor of a desert, the, the metaphor of a wilderness. He said, I am the voice. Of one crying in the wilderness. The children of Israel. The children of Judah. Thought that they were in a lush tropical garden. A religious garden filled with religious heritage. But John says that they were in a wilderness. They were in a dry and a barren desert. By the way. What metaphor would you use to describe your heart? Is it a wilderness? Is it a meadow? Is it a garden? How would you describe your heart? Chuck Swindoll put it this way. Quote, the highway to heaven is paved over prepared hearts, hearts that are repentant, hearts that are soft. Hearts that are fertile. Isaiah makes it clear that the rough terrain in our hearts need to be smoothed before the Lord can come near. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert, a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Let every rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley, unquote. The idea is that John is a voice and as the voice, his is a voice that is preparing people to meet Jesus and embrace him for eternity. You may think that you're a husband or a wife. You may think that you're an administrator or a teacher. You may think that you're a businessman. You may think that you're this or you're that. You may describe yourself in terms that flatter yourself. But God makes it abundantly clear. You're a voice. You're a voice. God has placed you in the circumstance that God has placed you to be a voice to tell people about Jesus and to prepare people to know Jesus. John's message seems to begin with the condition of the heart. John is a voice. And because he's a voice for Jesus, he has to speak to the circumstances of the heart. Is that what you do? When people ask you who you are, what do you tell them? Look at verse 24, the minister's ministry. It says, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. 
By the way, the Pharisees were a religious party. And they were very much concerned for the law, for the observance of the law, for the religious rites and ceremonies associated with with the law. The origin of of the Pharisees seemed to find themselves during the time of the captivity. Most of you are aware of the circumstances. David and Solomon are king. They have a divided kingdom. The Assyrians come in and, and sweep away the northern kingdom. Only the southern kingdom is left. The Babylonians come from the east. They capture um Judah and Jerusalem, you know the story when you were a kid, how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're taken into captivity. They find themselves on the banks of of the river near Babylon. And now the Jews have to figure out a way to know God, honor God and observe the things of God without a temple and without sacrifices. And the Parushim as they came to be called, Pharisees, they called themselves those who were set apart for the things of God. And so they didn't start off bad. By the way, the name doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament or in the Apocrypha. Some suggest that the Parashim or the Pharisees are the Hasadim or the Chesedim. That was a word that was used to describe the godly. Or the saints mentioned in the book of Maccabees. In verse 25, it says, and they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, if you are not Elijah, if you are not the prophet? In other words, the religious leaders, in effect, are saying, wait a minute. If you're not the Christ. If you don't have a mandate from Malachi, if you don't have any support from Moses, then why are you baptizing? It would be like in our culture and society if someone asked you, if it's not in the Bible, why are you doing it? If it's not in the Bible, then by what authority, on what grounds, on what basis are you doing what you're doing? Here, the objection seems to be the introduction of a new religious rite, a new ceremonial practice. If it's not in the law, if it's not in the in the prophets, why are you doing this? And, and there seems to be some argument among scholars of ancient Judaism, whether proselytes, that is, God fearers or Gentiles who were converted to Judaism, performed a kind of a ritual baptism to identify themselves with with Israel. You have to understand something. If you were a Gentile. And you wanted to have a right relationship through the God of Israel, through the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. If you were a male, you had to go through certain rites, including the right of ritual circumcision. And if you weren't a man, then you would go through other kinds of rites, including if you were a man, a sort of a baptism. But the Jewish people wouldn't baptize you. You would ritually cleanse yourself. You would go into the mikvayot. You would engage in the ritual cleansing. But there was no such cleansing for Jews. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees, the Parashim, seemed to have not only resisted John's baptism, but rejected it. Do you remember later on in the New Testament, they asked Jesus a question and Jesus said, I'm more than happy to answer your question. But first, you answer my question. The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? Do you remember their answer? If we say from God, he's going to say, then why weren't you baptized? 
And if we say for man, the people will kill us because they all think he was a prophet. Well, what's the answer? We don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I answer your question. You see, the Padashim, the Pharisees, observed ritual cleansings. They believed God had given Moses the law, the written law, but they also believed that God gave Moses an oral law to help explain the written law. For the Padashim, for the Pharisees, they're thinking, why would you treat Jews as if they're aliens to God's covenant? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And the Jews were indignant at the idea that they had to repent. Their question would be, repent? Repent for what? What have I done wrong? There are 613 laws, 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. Many of the Pharisees, like Paul, would say, concerning the law, I am blameless. Repent, repent for what? By the way, the Pharisees added three more classes of traditions, opinions concerning disputes that was settled by a majority vote. They answered questions like what is clean, what is unclean, whether or not the Padashim or the saint could eat with the multitudes or not eat with the multitudes. By the way, Jews were forbidden to pay money to Gentiles three days before a heathen festival. They were forbidden to show the way to a spring of water to the uncircumcised. The, the, the Pharisee was forbidden to assist a heathen mother in the labors of childbirth. If you were a non-Jew giving birth to a child, a Pharisee wouldn't help you because it would, they would run the risk of becoming unclean. If you were a Pharisee, you had to read the Decalogue. Once a day, at least the Decalogue, by the way, is the Ten Commandments. You had to read them once a day. But here's what else you had to do. You had to read it without moving your foot, without moving your hand or even without moving your eye. And you had to do it in a clean place, four feet from a grave, lest you be defiled. No wonder Jesus would later denounce their hypocrisy, called them vipers, blind guides and murderers and whitewashed tombs. Because the Pharisees trusted their own self-righteousness. They share a common problem with many religious people today. Do you know what the problem with a religious person is? For a religious person... They're incapable of repentance. How can you be sorry for sin if you don't even think that there's anything wrong with you? And so with John's message, there's something wrong. There's something really wrong. You have to turn from your sin. And you have to embrace a lifestyle both of prayer and purity before God. Because what God is looking for is for friendship and relationship through the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. So why did John baptize? Why was it even necessary to be a lamp, to be a voice, to be someone who cleanses? Look at his answer in verse 26. I baptize with water. 
but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Remember what his message used to be? The Messiah's coming. He's got a new message. The Messiah's here. He's here. He's here. By the way, I suspect that Jesus really was there in the crowd, listening to the exchange between the religious leaders and John the Baptist. Jesus was there. He was listening to the interrogation. He was listening to the questions. He was listening to the answers. You realize Jesus is there, too, when you're talking with your husband and your and your wife, that Jesus is there when you're talking with your children. Jesus is there when you're talking with your friends and your neighbors. Jesus is there when you're talking with your boss. Jesus is there when you're talking with those acquaintances. Jesus is there. Jesus shows up anywhere when you begin to talk about him and say things about him. No wonder John's replies are brief and blunt. And here's his answer. You ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing? Is it because of permission from the Pharisees? Is it permission from the Sadducees? Is it because of permission from the religious authorities? He's saying the Messiah motivates me. It's the Messiah that's motivating me. It's the Christ who is who has come. The Messiah is motivating me. And look at verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He doesn't waste time answering their objections. John doesn't seem obligated to a religious school. He is the son of a priest married to the daughter of a priest. But he isn't going to be intimidated by either the Sadducees or the Pharisees. John's authority comes from the Messiah. The hope of every faithful Hebrew heart. He was there. And they couldn't even see him. And John makes it clear that he's not the Christ. He makes it clear that he's not even some great prophet, even though he is. Not because he says so, but because Jesus says so. And by the way, what you say about yourself isn't nearly as important as what Jesus has to say about you. We may seek recognition. We may seek promotion. We may seek honor that simply doesn't belong to us. Paul refuses to be caught in that trap. Paul, the apostle, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he writes to Timothy and he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Oh, you're you're exaggerating, Paul. That's hyperbole and exaggeration. Oh, Paul, there's no need for low self-esteem here. You know what I'm going to suggest to you? That he wrote it because he believed it. That the filthiness, the wickedness, the sinfulness of his being was absolutely wicked and absolutely corrupt. That he was a wicked, sinful, 
gravy-sucking pig monster. Just like you. That in the secret circumstances of the hidden crevices of your heart that only you know about, you know the truth. John presents for us a ministry filled with humility. Do you remember what Jesus says about him? Among those born of women, there's none greater. From a prophetic standpoint, none greater. Not Noah. Not Abraham. Not Isaac. Not Jacob. Not Joseph. Not Isaiah. Not Jeremiah. Not Ezekiel. Not Moses. John proclaims and then confesses that Jesus is to be, be preferred. John goes so far as to say he's not worthy to unloose the shoestrings on the Savior's sandals. You may not even understand what this means. Let me help you. In first century Judaism, you had rabbis and you had disciples. And typically a rabbi could ask a disciple to do almost anything. As a matter of fact, there was a discussion that would go along. Look, the rabbi is asking me to do different things. How far do I go? How far do I say, look, I know you're a rabbi and I'm simply the disciple. But hey, we've got to draw the line somewhere. We've got to have boundaries somewhere. And this is where I draw the line. Where The place where they drew the line is that even a disciple didn't have to do the humiliating exercise of taking off the rabbi's sandals and washing his feet or loosening and unloosening the sandal. That was something that was only fit for a slave. We live in a world, we live in a culture, we live in a society that we're constantly wondering, how high can I go? How many television shows can I be on? How many radio stations can I be on? How many books can I write? How long will it take for people to recognize what a wonderful, powerful man of God that I am? How high can I go? And John is saying, how low can I go? How low, how low, how low is as low as you can get. If I, I tried to think of, of, of something that would be meaningful to you. What, what is it that you are not willing to do? Where you go, hey, I'm willing to do almost anything, but I won't do that. Is it empty bedpans in a senior citizen's? Is it to clean the sores of someone who has HIV? What is it that you won't do? You won't go into the children's ministry and you won't clean up vomit off the floor because, hey, I know I'm a Christian and I know God's called me to serve, but I won't do that. If you're a mother with a child and you ask the mother, what will you do to ensure, ensure the security and the safety of your child? The mother will look at you and say, what won't I do? I will engage in whatever behavior is necessary to make sure that my child is safe. What are you willing to do for Jesus? The, the real point here is this. It's when you ask and answer the question this way. I'm willing to do anything. Except John is willing to say, I am willing to do whatever it takes to make the Savior 
happy. And look what it says in verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. It's kind of a funny verse, isn't it? Just seems sort of like an add on. Some versions read these things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan. The oldest Greek manuscripts contain the word Bethania. We know that Origen, a third century father, couldn't find a place called Bethania near the Jordan or beyond the Jordan. So he found a place called Bethabara and he inserted that word. And so Bethabara became the dominant reading in the manuscripts. The name means the house of the fairy. In other words, the place where you cross the river and scholars have speculated that it might be a little bit north of the Dead Sea in a place thought to be near Jericho. Some people have placed it even further, 50 miles up the road toward Bashan, 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. When I take trips to Israel and I take you groups of people go with me to Israel, we come to this place called Bethabara and there we baptize people. So that like John the Baptist and like Jesus in the old days, you could go, I was baptized in the Jordan. But I was thinking about this passage. And I was asking myself, what in the world could it possibly mean? And the truth is, we don't know where this place is. It was a God forsaken place in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness And the only thing that's honorable about this place is John was there talking about Jesus. This reminded me of something. That whenever you go to a wilderness place, whenever you go to a desert place, whenever you go to an empty place. And you testify for Jesus and you witness for Jesus, you bring honor to that place. You see, some of you might be thinking I'm in a desert place. I'm in a wilderness. I'm trying to get my act together. You see, my life isn't perfect and my walk isn't perfect and my circumstances aren't perfect in my job, in my marriage. Things aren't perfect. And so you say that I will become an effective witness when I'm I'm in a perfect place. But let me tell you something. If you wait until your life is perfect, if you wait till your walk is perfect, if you wait till your circumstances are perfect to talk about Jesus. You probably won't. Remember what I asked you earlier? How would you characterize your heart? Are you in a desert place? Are you in a wilderness Are you in a place of imperfection? Don't use that as an excuse not to honor him. Not to talk about him. Not to identify with him. In humility. And in ministry. Who are you? The answer should be simple. I used to be. A gravy-sucking pig sinner. And then Jesus saved me. And this is who I am. I am a person who's prepared to tell you that Jesus loves you. And that he died for you. And that he thinks about you every moment. 
And he's looking for a reason not to exclude you, but to include you. He's not looking for a reason to keep you away. He's looking for a reason to forgive you. Won't you come to him? Won't you trust him? Won't you be the voice? Won't you be the lamp? Won't you be the messenger? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray that our witness and our testimony, like John, would be one of identity. That we are simply what Jesus would have us to be. One of humility. There's no place that I'm not willing to go for Jesus. There's no one that I'm willing to leave outside the circle of his love. Lord, we pray for our identity to be in Jesus, our humility to be in Jesus, and our ministry to point people to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for that person who's in that desert place, in that wilderness. Like the song that we sing, though I walk through the wilderness, though I'm found in the desert place, Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would forget about ourselves. That we would point people to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.